Join me as I talk to Laura about how she and her family navigated winding down a year living in Sweden just as the coronavirus pandemic was ramping up in Europe, and how her husband's long COVID was the souvenir they never wanted on this special COVID-19 bonus episode of Roads Taken. I do need to ask this because I had heard that you were in Sweden and then the pandemic happened and I heard she's still in Sweden. <laughs> so so what was life like before and and actually why Sweden, first of all, and then kind of what was life like then and then the after? So Chris and I had a decision point where we realized that he was about to get tenure. Uh, we hoped he would get tenure and we had an opportunity to for him to be on sabbatical to take a leave. And we started to discuss like where in the world could we go that would be interesting for our kids, late elementary school, middle school at the time, would be good for both of us. And I had had the privilege of going to the Stockholm International Water Institute's uh, World Water Week a couple times and a great group of people working on water issues. So it was like, you know, Sweden might actually be a really good place for me. And for him, the Swedes actually have the equivalent of our social security number. They have a, a person number, basically a number that's attached to you, but they use it for everything. So while we were there with our person numbers, you know, you go by a headlamp in the store and they would use the person number for the warranty information. The number is used for everything. And so what you can, in the US with our census every 10 years, you can ask questions, but you have to interpolate a lot of the data in between. Sweden, you can just ask, you know, what's the outcome of the student who does this later in life and what's their medical history, right? You can see all of that if you are there and working with that data. So he had colleagues at Stockholm University who were willing to bring him into projects working with some of that very, very detailed demographic information. I was partnered with Uppsala University a little bit north of Stockholm in their Peace and Conflict Research Department. They have a water conflict program. So I was working there and really curious to sort of step out of the legal world and into sort of peace building diplomacy world and see what that looked like. So we were there. Our kids were at an international school. We tried to get them enrolled in Swedish school, but we didn't have the person number yet, so it was impossible to do. But we were there and, you know, had a chance to kind of hit a reset. It was an interesting experience, right, because I am fixed-term faculty. I wasn't entitled to leave, but managed to negotiate, particularly since I got a Fulbright, to be able to go do this work. But I was also still working with the U.S. So part of the early parts of it were actually fairly dislocating because I was working a lot remotely. So I was in the world of Zoom before everybody else was in the world. So in some ways later, because a lot of my job is engagement, I had already made the shift to the online world while we were there. I got to go to the Netherlands and go to a conference on water. I'm meeting a lot of the folks across Europe working in these issues. Got to go to Denmark and talk with people about water quality. Um, so we just both dove into the deep end and work was, I think, really enriching. It was a chance to hit a reset, to experience a different country. We were skiing in the French Alps the week you shouldn't have been skiing in the French Alps. We were staying um, with our friends Annie and Coulter. They were actually touring Europe that year with their two kids. And we were skiing uh, in the valley up from Chamonix and watching COVID start to just break across Europe. And near the end of that week, there was about a meter of snow that came down. We had some great skiing, but Chris was like, I feel like I have something in my lungs. And so, you know, we just figured maybe he'd gotten some powder in his lungs. But then we were, you know, do we drive back from France? Do we fly back? Right. And so we came back into a changed world. 
that was in late February, early March. By March 17th, my Fulbright was a six-month Fulbright, ended in February. But worldwide, all the Peace Corps volunteers and all the Fulbrights were ordered home. Chris had by that point gone to a doctor and they were like, well, we think you have bronchitis. And you were in France, you weren't in Italy, we're not going to test you for COVID. We were like, either he has COVID (laughs) or we're going to get it. So if we had tried to leave in that early March period, that mid-March period, we priced tickets to fly from Paris, often Stockholm to Paris, back to the US for $6,000 per ticket, $8,000 per ticket. It's going to cost us $32,000 to get home. And we were like, okay, who can tell us where, what we have to do? And we were like, Penn State, are you okay if we stay here? And Penn State folks were like, you're fine. Our families were like, you're fine, just stay. So Chris, during early March, didn't feel great. I had a period where I didn't feel great, like my bones just ached, but we couldn't get tested for anything. And, you know, our kids were schooling remotely from Sweden, but every day we were, do we go, do we stay? Our house in the U.S. was rented to a Spanish family who locked themselves down well before the COVID kind of really, because Spain got hit pretty hard early on. So even if we came back to the U.S., we didn't have a place to go. We were renting an apartment from one of my former law students who was in Australia with her boyfriend, and they were staying put and hunkered down. So there was this whole game of chess of who's where. March rolls on, Chris starts to feel better. He goes for a couple of runs and his system just tanks, right? Like, you know, easy run and he fell apart for a while. Feels better early April or they, you know, he runs over with my son to go get a birthday cake for my son on April 8th and he falls apart again. So by this point, somewhere in April, they have announced that they're going to end uh, the remote schooling for the kids in Sweden at their international school, very old building, tight hallways, and they're going to uh, introduce extra hand sanitation at the doorway, nothing about ventilation. And it was very clear that ventilation, and by this point, it was also very clear that Sweden was taking its very own approach. And that approach was really, really different. So at that point, I mean, we were starting to feel uncomfortable, like something is happening more with Chris's health. We've got to go. So we were making plans to go home, you know, and this is right around the time when they were, they were starting to realize that people were walking around with low oxygen levels, but not knowing it. I was like, fine, I can fix this. I can get an oximeter and I can just test his oxygen levels and it's not a big deal. Go to all the pharmacies around. No, they don't sell it. The only place you can get it is the hospital. So I finally drag him to the hospital. You know, he's not feeling great take him to the hospital on Friday. They make him do like 80 air squats and they're like, look, you're fine. Your resting heart rate is fine and your oxygen levels are fine. But he didn't feel good. That Saturday, we wake up to the news that his 100-year-old grandmother had passed away. We were kind of sad. We go for a hike in the woods. He still doesn't feel great. He goes to bed and I wake up in the middle of the night to him hitting the floor, just absolute smash in the bathroom. And I come in to find blood everywhere. And he's like, I think I had a stroke. He's like, half of my face is numb. Half of my arms and legs are numb. You need to call the hospital now. I had just navigated this the day before, but, you know, calling, so if I can say this without tears, right? Calling the hospital, calling the ambulance to have somebody come in a foreign country, hoping your Swedish pronunciation is good enough to get them to your neighborhood. And then waiting for an ambulance at three in the morning, having, you know, sending your 14-year-old out to wait for the ambulance in the middle of COVID and having my 11-year-old sit with her dad 
And I'd also realized that once somebody goes into the hospital during COVID times, you can't touch them. You can't get them. You can't reach them. So I'm like scrambling around to put together a cell phone charger, his cell phone, a t-shirt, you know, shoes, socks. I don't even remember what I put in that bag, but it took them forever to get ready because COVID to prep and come in and then wheel him out in an ambulance. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to see you again. So he spent 40 hours in the emergency room, whereupon they rolled out. He didn't break his neck in the fall. <laughs> he didn't seem to have had a major stroke. He might have had a minor stroke. We still don't know. We were supposed to leave May 2nd. <laughs> I'm like talking with our friend Jamie, who's an emergency room doc, another Dartmouth person. She's like, you know, you're going to need to get clearance to fly with a brain injury. So they were like, you got to stay for an extra week and get another CT scan. He finally came home, but his nervous system was just basically super, super tanked. So we eventually came back on May 9th in amongst a lot of challenges traveling, <laughs> flying on a flight, easy to get plane tickets at that point. But one of the guys on the flight had a schizophrenic breakdown, right? Like, and had to be detained on a flight with like 20 people on it. So stuff like that was just thing after thing after thing where we're like, we cannot make up how seriously challenging this is. So he's effectively got long haul COVID issues <clears throat> two years later still with his neurological system still really struggling. He got a handle on it last summer, finally, and felt much better. And then as he taught again this year, sort of the pressure and stress really took his system apart. So, I mean, I think that's the other thing I would say is we've navigated all of this in the midst now of quite a bit of adversity and a really close look at what happens uh, when you're like, it's not that big a deal. So we also then came back, we left Sweden in the height of their outbreak and came back actually to far more fear in the United States, but very low levels here in the United States. And so part of it was like the whiplash of coming from a country that wasn't taking it very seriously, but had real issues to a place that was taking it seriously, but just didn't have that much COVID at the time. Waves of COVID have now come through. We're like on our fourth wave of COVID. And so it's been interesting to navigate that space, both personally, but more globally, at a time we're trying to also raise now teenagers and kind of just navigate work, life, and all of the other things. For a long time, we were able to, to deal with things by just living day to day, right? What, what do I need to do today to get through this day? And I think it's, it's made much more of an immediacy I'm much more willing to say, yeah, I've got more work to do, but it's 10 o'clock and I can't deal with it. I'm going to bed. And trying to reprioritize, I think, health and sanity a little bit more. Our frustrations with it, finally, I mean, we were, we were pretty public with the struggles we had to the point of even going to our local paper and being like, we're talking with a lot of people who've never met anybody with COVID. Let us share our story. And it's not a great story, right? You know, here's two young, and Chris was in the best shape of his life. He and our son, Stephen, did a, a race with 15,000 of their closest Swedish friends, right? You know, big race. And they were, he was really fast. He was super fit. And so part of it is just, wow, okay, this is what this is like to actually deal with a long-term health issue. And so it's it's taken reworking our relationship. It's taken reworking kind of our expectations for what's normal, what our energy levels are, and to really say, well, what do we value? I'm actually going to prioritize seeing family and seeing friends and taking the downtime that's necessary. 
What does that look like? Not quite sure, but it's been an eye-opening and very direct experience. It's certainly changed our worldview. It's changed how we navigate in this space. It's changed how we navigate within the university, but we've found, I think, ways to kind of handle it. And again, to come back to what makes us resilient, both as a community, as a family, in that broader setting. So it's it's been a, quite a learning experience. That was a special bonus episode of Roads Taken. Each Monday, we post another full-length interview episode with a classmate of mine as we walk down the road to our 25th college reunion. Join us on the journey by subscribing or following wherever you access your favorite podcasts, or check us out at roadstakenshow.com. Thanks so much for listening.